Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Saturday, September 4th, 2021. And we will be rebroadcasting the show on Monday, September 6th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 72nd post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show, we do something a little bit different. While our focus will be on current foreign policy issues and how they impact the world around us in ways that we're not generally aware of, we also have woven into this show some reflections on the purpose of the show, on what is its intent and its methodology. But first, we also want to acknowledge that you will be hearing the show on Labor Day, which is the first Monday in September, and it celebrates the social and economic achievements of workers in the United States. Everything that we cherish materially has been created by other working people, and it's something worth reminding ourselves of. And this show has done a lot of investigative journalism about the disposition of the working people of this country when it comes to material, spiritual, and just general health issues. It's interesting that when you go to work every day, you create a certain amount of value from the time you punch in to the time you punch out, no matter what job you are involved with. What's not so clear is how much of that value you actually get recompensated for in the wages that you receive. So we want to send out a great appreciation for everything that you do, the person listening to these words right now, everything you've done and will do in the course of your working days. Thank you, and thank you for listening to Bringing Light into Darkness. And please enjoy tonight's show. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host and producer, Pedro Gatos. Today is Saturday, September the 4th, 2021, and we are pre-taping a show that will be shared with our audience on Monday, September the 6th, 2021. Tonight's show is a little different as it seeks to share and include the purpose of what Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis was created for and its purpose. So let's get started. Gross wealth inequality in this world has created tremendous amounts of preventable human misery. Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis focuses primarily on U.S., Western, and world foreign policy issues, their impact on humanity, and the historical factors that created such wealth disparities. The darkness is the informational prejudice that Herbert Marcuse described many years ago as a universe of informational discourse without opposition. 
that certain information, important and contradictory information, is largely kept out of that universe of information that has been made available to U.S. news consumers. That which we do not know, we cannot consider. Bringing light into darkness seeks to bring to light exactly that. Important pieces of the puzzle, historically and currently speaking, that are generally ignored, misrepresented, or exaggerated. It is said that those who disproportionately own the material wealth of society also own the ideas of that epoch. Bringing light into darkness seeks to provide well-vetted information essential to understanding the world around us that, that is largely absent from the universe of discourse, a universe mainly created by our mainstream mass media. When Sherlock Holmes was trying to solve a crime, he would often turn to his assistant Watson and say, Watson, we need data, 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 more data, Watson. Bringing light into darkness seeks to provide that data necessary to explain and define the crime so it can then be corrected. The crime we seek to resolve is why is most human misery in the world created not by natural causes, but by human behavior. And a major actor we have empirically discovered to be at the heart of generating so much human misery is U.S. and Western foreign policy outcomes. We are told that our foreign policy promotes democracy, but we have discovered something different. Our method of investigation into the character of our U.S. foreign policy and its interventions worldwide is primarily predicated not on how those interventions impact the few, but instead by examining empirically what impact, what outcomes, have these interventions had on the majority population interests of each country we have intervened in. Put simply, it is as Republican presidential candidate Ronald Reagan asked at the debate with the incumbent President Jimmy Carter on October 28, 1980, when he posed one of the most important campaign questions of all time, quote, are you better off today than you were four years ago, end quote. The answer for the U.S. majority population was a resounding no, and it spelled doom to President Carter's re-election chances. While arguably short-term economic cycles and or sanctions or other outside factors not under the control of a government being judged may be the main culprit for declining or unacceptable quality of life conditions for the majority population of the country being examined, Nonetheless, it is an important question to ask and to answer as truthfully as possible. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? In fact, when it comes to U.S. foreign policy and its real-life outcomes for majority populations, what has been the most disturbing finding that our studies have consistently discovered and revealed, and that we'll share tonight, is that when our side wins, majority populations suffer, and when our side loses, the opposite is true. In other words, when it comes to our foreign policy outcomes, when governments we support come to power versus those we have sought to change, replace, or avoid coming to power, a striking outcome consistently and predictably occurs. And that is, the quality of life for the majority population is almost always improved under the governments we seek to replace, but come to power nonetheless, while the quality of life for the majority population precipitously declines under those governments we support that gain or remain in power. If indeed our foreign policy is to promote democracy, which is clearly a good thing and something to be proud of, but what we discover and can empirically show is that the majority populations that we intervene in are consistently worse off after our foreign policy is executed successfully in generating the government outcome that we promoted, then I hope the reader or listener of these words and U.S. citizens will agree we are not promoting democracy, but instead 
promoting special and largely undeserved privilege. Today we will examine the outcomes of a host of countries we have intervened in foreign policy-wise. We will share reflections of empirical measurements that we call quote-unquote quality of life indicators that reflect the welfare of majority populations in the countries presented. We do this to ascertain which governments are majority populations better off under. Are they the ones we are promoting or the governments we are opposing as a matter of foreign policy? Before detailing a number of examples of U.S. foreign policy outcomes that will demonstrate a disturbing, consistent pattern that strongly suggests that the real character of our interventions is much different to what we have been indoctrinated to believe, a couple of important caveats. We revolted against the King of England because of unfair forms of economic exploitation. The Stamp Act, the Boston Tea Party, and forms of unfair taxation all gave advantages to the Crown at the expense of majority colonialists under their control. It seems, when we view other countries' desire for sovereignty and independence, we seem to forget our own. U.S.-enabled coups in Haiti in 1991 and 2004 and the reinstatement of Bertrand Aristide in 1994, but only at the cost of Western internationally imposed economic preconditions, all were in line with ensuring that the programs and the material benefits the Aristide and Lavalis party had created and promised and began delivering would never be fully realized. These preconditions ensured an outcome that was in direct defiance of the mandates Aristide was elected to fulfill. The intervention history in Haiti by the interests of international capital on behalf of corporate interests has a name. It is called a predatory neoliberal agenda. It is predatory by definition because it promotes profiteering benefits for the few at the direct cost of the vast majority. The term predatory neoliberal agenda describes a political economic process in which the conditions that generate the profoundly unfair degrees of exploited labor of the majority population is coupled with the relaxed government protection of its own country's natural resources, which allow foreign investment exploitation. Through reduced tariffs, absence or reversal of land reforms, and absence of fair taxation rates, wholesale looting of a nation's wealth is enabled while its ability to provide and meet the basic human dignity needs for its population is made impossible, and then blamed on its population as proof of their backwardness or inability to self-govern. Meanwhile, the well-deserved subsistence needs and social services for the working majority, upon whose backs these huge profits are extracted by the moneyed and corporate elites, are left unfulfilled, resulting in the unconscionable but absolutely reversible poverty rates we find in practically every developing nation that falls prey to this neoliberal agenda. For 10 years, from 1994 to 2004, Haiti broke away from this model, this neoliberal model, that has led so many developing nations away from self-sufficiency and into terminal debt and poverty. We will come back to Haiti and the disposition of its majority population momentarily. But another caveat we want to explain is that to understand oppression of the majority populations of the world means to understand that there are always beneficiaries of that gross inequality. From those wealthy elite that reside in a number of different nations are those that populate what can be called an international power structure. They are the beneficiaries who got their wealthy leverage over the rest of the world mainly through the colonial and neo-colonial exploitation of majority populations throughout world history of the last 500 to 600 years. 
Other Bringing Light into Darkness shows have focused on and explained these phenomena of capital accumulation at the expense of peoples of developing or undeveloped nations of the past 500 to 600 years, so we will not do so here. However, part of that pillaging was in Haiti, formerly the French colony of Saint-Dominique, and if we fast forward to July 28, 1915, we find a U.S. military occupation in which we installed the Haitian president of the Senate as head of state in a snap election in August of 1915, and within two months, a treaty was signed, quote-unquote, legalizing U.S. occupation of Haiti for the next 20 years. The Duvalier dictatorship later emerged under U.S. tutelage and support, and it ran and exploited Haiti in the interests of the United States and Haitian elites connected to big business interests for another 30 years. The Duvalier dictatorship, it was executed from 1957 to 1986, first under Francois Duvalier, known as Papa Doc, and then under his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, known as Baby Doc. So with that introduction, we turn to our objective tonight to provide examples of U.S. foreign policy to examine if we indeed are promoting democracy as our primary goal and outcome. Example 1. We return to Haiti. On January 1, 1804, after defeating the forces, not just the three empires, the French, the English, and the Spanish, but also their burgeoning colonial ally, the United States, who provided some $750 million of military aid, Haiti attained and proclaimed its independence, becoming the first free black republic in the world. But it would be another 186 years later, following their independence, that Haiti's first democratically elected president, Bertrand Aristide, would win election and then take office in 1991 after winning that election with more than 60% of the vote. A U.S.-enabled coup later that same year removed Aristide, and the coup period lasted three years until 1994. Due to, among a number of issues, including an international outrage and a significant refugee problem coming to United States shores, the U.S. and the international community reinstated Aristide with certain strings attached in 1994. Following 1994, in 1996, Aristide founded the Fanmi Lavalas Party. In November 2000, Aristide was re-elected, garnering some 90% of the popular vote. Why such an overwhelming mandate? Over the 10-year period from 1994 until he was cooed out again in February of 2004, Aristide and the Fanmi Lavalas Party delivered on promises and vastly improved the quality of life for the majority population of Haiti by promoting and overseeing the following changes. First, it is important to another important fact. Haiti has always been a location of some of the cheapest labor in the world, and particularly the hemisphere. Aristide raised the minimum wage in 1996 and then doubled it in 2003. On February 6, 1995, Aristide disbands the army, trained by the United States to be an instrument of civilian control, and Aristide replaced it with civilian police force, thus removing main instrument of state repression and the main instrument in executing numerous previous coups and allowing the Haitian people an unprecedented level of freedom of speech, assembly, and personal safety unknown before. Meanwhile, under the Aristide administration, the health care budget as a percentage of the overall Haitian budget was higher than any previous government. As a result, a number of health clinics were built, hospitals were built, and dispensaries while adding improved medical services. The budget also greatly increased the number of health care workers, including doctors, 
At the same time, there were huge educational gains under the Aristide and Lavalis party. From 1996 to 2003, illiteracy was reduced from 85% to 55%. 195 new primary schools and 104 new public high schools were built, including in rural areas where no schools ever before existed. Thousands of scholarships provided for children to attend private schools. School books and uniforms were subsidized. The school lunch programs were expanded to serve 700,000 hot meals a day to children who otherwise may have had no meals. With respect to children, special courts for children were established, special child protection unit created within the Haitian National Police, laws were passed prohibiting all forms of corporal punishment against children. In 2003, a law was repealed, a labor code provision allowing child domestic service, which was mostly unpaid and thus chattel labor. Legislation passed prohibiting trafficking in persons, a long-term endemic abuse in Haiti affecting both adults and children. In 1995, Aristide established a cabinet-level Ministry of Women's Affairs to work for women's welfare. From 1994 to 2003, with regard to land reform and collecting unpaid taxes, land reform distributed 2.47 acres of land to 1,500 peasant families in the Artabonite River Valley. The Lavalis government provided tools, credit, technical assistance, fertilizers, and heavy equipment to farmers. Irrigation systems were repaired, bringing water to some 7,000 farmers, and rice yields, which was Haiti's main staple crop, rose some 25% from 2.7 tons to 3 to 3.5 tons per hectare. Meanwhile, the government aggressively pursued collection of unpaid tax and utility bills owed the government by the wealthy and powerful elite businessmen to generate revenues used for health care and education. And you see this pattern throughout many of these governments that we overthrow that prioritize the majority interests over the elite interests and basically just enforce tax laws. We saw this in Venezuela among a number of nations. Anytime the rich are taxed appropriately, it's time for that government to go. But it was because of all of these programs and the uplifting of the majority population in Haiti never seen before in its history that Aristide received some 90% or more of the popular vote in the 2000 election. And it was due to all these programs and outcomes for the majority population that U.S. foreign policy and the international power structure, if you will, deemed that this government had to be removed. All of these advances and trends were discussed, were stunted or reversed following the February 2004 coup when U.S. Marines kidnapped and deposed democratically elected President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Since the 2004 coup, the predatory neoliberal agenda we alluded to has reasserted its dominance and has largely re reversed these remarkable achievements through forced privatizations, downsizing of state-owned industries, and outlawing the Lavalis Party and eliminating many of the Lavalis instituted social programs in return for quote-unquote financial aid from the international community, which added to the already onerous Haitian national debt. So this concludes our overview of our first example of U.S. foreign policy in Haiti and the outcomes that clearly demise quality of life issues for the majority population of Haiti. We next move to Honduras as our second example of are you better off before or after the June 2009 coup enabled by the Obama administration and its State Department led by Hillary Clinton. How did U.S. foreign policy intervention or lack of intervention, impact the majority population of Honduras. You need to remember that Honduras is one of the poorest countries in Latin America, 
Manuel Zelaya, who was elected democratically and took office in January of 2006, his administration was eventually overthrown on June 28, 2009. However, before he was overthrown in a U.S.-enabled coup, there was a three-and-a-half-year tenure to examine as to what the Zelaya government did or did not do in support of the majority population's quality-of-life interests. According to the research by the economist and Ph.D. Jose Antonio Cordero, who we were blessed to have as a guest on Bringing Light into Darkness many years ago, in a November 2009 report published by the Center for Economic Policy Research that was entitled Honduras Recent Economic Performance, Dr. Cordero did just that. He compared the government we supported that preceded Zelaya's elected government to that of Zelaya's government that we abandoned in its time of need. Were Hondurans better off or worse off under the three-and-a-half-year tenure of Zelaya? Here are some of his findings. On December 23, 2008, and after one month of fruitless negotiations between workers and employers, the Zelaya administration decided to increase the monthly minimum wage in the urban area by enacting a 60% increase in the minimum wage law. The effect was to raise the monthly wage from some $178.66 to $289.02 U.S. dollars. That's about a 60% increase. In the rural areas, the minimum wage was increased to $213.08. The government decree set to take effect on January 1, 2009, was given a warm reception by labor, but generated bitter reactions from employers, he wrote. After the rise, however, the minimum wage was still not enough to cover the value of the basic consumption bundle. So this is the basic needs you have to have met to stay out of poverty, and this raise still did not meet those needs, but was vigorously opposed by the employing class. Zelaya's administration removed one of the most critical barriers to education, the national policy of mandatory school fees. Abolishing these fees, he opened the doors of the elementary school system to more than 450,000 Honduran children and implemented a more than 25% increase in the number of children receiving free school lunches. Various food programs were also expanded, increasing the number of children receiving one free school meal to some 1.068 million kids. As a comparison, it was some 800,000 children that benefited from the program in 2005, which would represent more than a 25% increase for children that benefited from that program. On December 22, 2007, Honduras became a member of Petrocaribe, a pact for energy cooperation involving 18 countries in the Caribbean and Latin America, including, among others, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Guatemala. Obviously, the centerpiece of this is Venezuela, which was providing substantial volumes of oil with favorable credit conditions to the member countries. These cooperative agreements between a number of nations in trade prioritized the interests of majority populations throughout this region. It created fair trade arrangements that benefited all the nations and their majority populations. This is distinctly contrary to free trade agreements in which profiteering is the outcome and the priority and therefore put them in the crosshairs of what was unacceptable for U.S. and international investment capital. The Zelaya administration led a decision to join the Chavez-led Latin American Center for Bolivarian Alternative for the Americas, ALBA, and that's the trading group I was referring to, or at least one of them. It was ratified by the Honduran Congress in October of 2008. And in fact, despite the world recession that began in 2008, 
Despite being the third poorest country in Latin America with the lowest wages in Central America, quote, the economy nonetheless did very well during the Zelaya administration, end quote. Honduras was the fastest growing country in Central America after Costa Rica with a GDP growth of 6.6% in 2006, 6.3% in 2007, slowing due to the world recession but still growing in 2008 by 4%. The economy grew more than during the previous administration. Poverty was reduced significantly in the first two years, for which there are data, from some 65.8% of households in 2005 to 60.2% in 2007. Inequality also fell. From 2005 to 2006, the percent of income captured by the lower deciles, the poorest, went from 2.1% to 2.5%, and the percent going to the intermediate deciles also increased from 35 to almost 39%. At the same time, the share captured by the richest segment fell from nearly 47% in 2005 to 42.4% in 2006. So you can see all of the basic need improvements to the majority population of Honduras, which were all vanquished following the 2009 coup, which was enabled by the United States. We need to take a short pause for the cause to get you some important information Remember, you are listening to the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP, broadcasting from the capital city of Austin, Texas. Don't touch that dial.